Welcome back to Foundations in International Political Economy. Foundations in IPE is a showcase of interviews with foundational figures in the discipline of international or global political economy. The project is led by Dr. Stuart Shields from the University of Manchester and myself, Professor Alex Nunn from the University of Derby. You can find out more by visiting our website www.ipefoundations.org.uk where there are videos of the interviews and more information about the project. We're grateful for the support of the British Academy and the Levy Hume Trust. Video production was by Sam Jordan Films. Dr Sophia Price from Leeds Beckett University helped with the recording of the interviews. And music is Awakening by Waterboy, which is available on Pixabay. In this episode, Stuart and I are joined by Isabella Backer, Distinguished Research Professor, York University Chair, and Trudeau Fellow at York University, Toronto. Professor Backer's work is some of the most widely read in international political economy, and she is perhaps best known for her pioneering work in social reproduction theory. She recently edited a capital and class special issue on social reproduction, and her books on the topic are key reference points. She's also done pioneering work in health policy. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and has served as Fulbright New Century Scholar at the UN Division for the Advancement of Women. So basically, we start off by just saying, what does IP mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's also this thing about quite a lot of people in IP say, I'm not really IP. So mm-hmm. we're just wondering whether you see yourself as being in <laughs> the discipline really. or not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting question. I came to IP kind of in an indirect way, I would say. I studied uh, political science as an undergraduate and then was fortunate to study heterodox economics at the New School for my PhD. And so in that sense, my understanding of IP was quite conventional, that it was kind of a theoretical approach that allowed for a synthesis of economics and uh, international relations. But um, my training, fortunately, was also really critical, critical thinking, both in terms of uh, feminism as well as in terms of international relations and economics. So I think that that was another way in which I came to IPE, which was a fairly uh, young Uh, discipline, if you want to call it that, and we can get into that discussion as well. Um, At the time, I liked the fact that it was a relational approach that looked at economics and politics uh, globally and relationally, that it allowed for critical thinking. And I think it was also through my activism in the student movement that it really uh, spoke to me because it helped me to understand my political motivation and uh, strategize in a much broader way. Okay, and when you say it helps you to strategize, what what what? Because that's the activism story yeah. is really interesting. Well, you know, I think that as 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 uh, as critical theory changed. First, when I was initially a student, it was very much a national focus, and especially coming from Canada, English Canada, the focus was very much on. Uh, a political economy of nationalism and there was a long uh, rich tradition of that in Canada so I was first embedded in that 
But as, of course, the question of global restructuring and neoliberalism came into play, uh, I became much more interested in are there concepts, are there theories out there that would help me to understand Canada in a global context. And same with uh, student activism. I think that the issues uh, of solidarity became issues beyond borders. And very early on, I was involved in uh, struggles against the dictatorship in Chile, as well as uh, in South Africa. So I think that that again lent itself to having a broader lens, which is something that IPE brought to the table. Yeah. Do you, do you think IP? I mean, did IPE help you understand those particular struggles? It did, but here I guess I guess we can get into the question again of what is IPE, because in a sense, it was comparative political economy. Uh, that offered a lot of that scholarship that was also very politically engaged. And I mean, in general, I think that my training was never really in IPE. I came to it in a kind of indirect way, if you like. I was very influenced early on by uh, Bowles and Gintis's work on education and also their later work on the structural power of capital and uh, in particular the way in which capital's uh, monopoly of private property was a way in which it had asymmetrical power vis-a-vis -vis states. So I think that that was a big influence on me. Another influence was something called the Austrian School of Fiscal Sociology, which uh, I know sounds very exciting, <laughs> but it was actually uh, Richard Musgrave who wrote kind of the key textbook on public finance, which was one of my areas that I specialized in. He, he wrote and retrieved some of the earlier works by people like Rudolf Goldscheid and Schumpeter, who were really fascinated about how social structures, especially social structures of inequality, how they emerge and how they change and reconstitute themselves. And of course, they were particularly interested in questions of the state. So that's, that's how I kind of entered into those debates, because... Um, they made a historical argument that I found fascinating about the capitalist state, that it became a, a dependent state once you had the transition from feudalism to capitalism, and once uh, the state lost its lands and its kind of natural resources in, and became increasingly dependent on taxation and revenue. So I was always intrigued by uh, Marx's claim that tax struggle is the oldest form of class struggle. <laughs> and so very much came into those questions from that vantage point, as well as people like James O'Connor, fiscal crisis of the state, who I would say were all political economists. They were not IPE, but they looked at macro questions, they used a macro lens, and they used political economy. I've heard you speak before about um, the influence of the New School mm -hmm. as well. I mean, I didn't know if you wanted to expand on how you found that kind of intellectual environment and mm -hmm. the people. I know you've spoken about Nancy Fraser before. And so yeah. On. Yeah, well, sure. I'm always happy to uh, indulge talking about the New School at that particular point in time. I was there from 79 to 1982, so quite a long time ago. And at that time, as I said, there were a few places in the U.S. where you could really learn heterodox economics. 
but you had to be trained to be bilingual. So you were both mainstream as well as critical. And I think that that kind of intellectual flexibility and openness that I was taught there is something that I try to convey in both my work as well as the way in which I, I teach and supervise my students. It was a time where a lot of really um, established people passed through the new school. So people like Robert Brenner, I had him, Suzanne de Brunhoff, uh, Sue Himmelwhite. And then of course, uh, on the staff itself were David Gordon, Anwar Sheikh, um, Robert Heilbronner, who really taught me a lot about the history of economic ideas and uh, Gita Sen, who taught a gender and class stream. And that was really when I started to um, formulate a lot of my ideas, my intellectual ideas about gender and IPE was taking that stream, which was very unusual at that time to have that as a formal kind of learning stream that you could do your exams in. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, and that's interesting in of, of itself, isn't it? Because if you think if you tell that kind of chronology of IPE, you often get the kind of seventies starting point. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is gender was there right from the start off. Mm -hmm. Well, it was at the new school. Interestingly enough, it's being phased out now, and I think that this has to do with uh, you know external interpretations of what the discipline of economics should be. And I think we have those debates in IPE as well where, uh, in effect, that department was disciplined to be more mainstream. And uh, that was done through an external review board that uh, made it incumbent on them to change. So even though at the time I had to do a year of econometrics, I had to do macro, micro, history of economics, um, it, it, was, it became much more mathematized. So I think I probably got out of there with one of the last uh, dissertations that was based on using historical statistics, national income account statistics, because I looked at the social wage in Canada from the post-war period until the 1980s, and uh, with much struggle uh, with my supervisor, also incorporated um, domestic labor into that accounting of how the working class reproduced itself in Canada in that period. So. What did they get from the state? What did they get in terms of real wages? And what did they get in terms of the contribution of unpaid domestic labor? Wow, wow. <coughs> I didn't think about asking that. I didn't put this on the list, obviously. <coughs> I didn't think about it um, until you mentioned it. But I mean, was there anything about the, the kind of French English thing in Canada that influenced that early development? Um, I think that uh, in terms of my work in the in the women's movement in Canada, uh, it was it was a very interesting and, and instructive kind of set of relationships because there were completely different politics, completely different questions in Quebec versus the rest of Canada. So um, whereas, uh, for example, the English Canadian movement was much more focused on the federal state and what can we get from the state and kind of being recognized as citizens in our own rights. Uh, I think in Quebec, there was much more of an em emphasis on um, decentralization. <laughs> Obviously, there was a huge independence movement at that time, and that very much influenced uh, thinking in Quebec. But what 
did influence me a lot in English Canada was that very early on there was a quite radical uh, feminist political economy that was expressed both in the streets as well as uh, in, in schools. So, for example, in 1969, I think it was, Margaret Benston wrote the first English article, I think, on um, the political economy of domestic labor for Monthly Review, and she was Canadian. And that sort of started a fairly quick tradition of uh, feminist political economy writing, both within the context of Marxist theory and also engaging and sometimes pushing it for being insufficient in terms of taking into account questions of, of women's labor. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, if we move on then, mm -hmm. so what, what do you see as your major contribution to the field? <laughs> well, you know, I think I see myself as hopefully engaging in certain debates. I don't see myself as someone who is an IPE person, precisely because I didn't really train in that field. But I think that there's probably a couple of ways in which I've tried to engage with uh, some important debates. One relates to global governance, um, the other to social reproduction and work. And I would say the final one maybe to try and do critical problem solving in terms of policy. And I don't think that those are necessarily uh, distinct from each other. But in terms of uh, global governance, what I've really been interested in is to always look at the relationship between states and markets and civil society and also to think about how those kinds of framings are probably insufficient and that's why Stephen Gill and I wrote the book Power Production and Social Reproduction uh, based on some of uh, Robert Cox and Jeffrey Herod's earlier work but also trying to bring in this other dimension of social reproduction. So I think that in terms of questions of global governance, I've always been interested in the regulation of the macroeconomy and specifically its relationship to how social policy changes, uh, again, mainly in the, in the richer countries. And um, my second, well, no, actually it was my first book, The Strategic Silence, really try to uh, start thinking about how global restructuring is taking place on a gender terrain and how macroeconomics, which was very much part of this act of global restructuring through institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, how it really needed to become more what we called in those days gender sensitive. So. Uh, that would mean everything from recognizing that there's all this free labor, so it's not that women are a, an undertapped resource, but in fact they're probably overextended in many ways. That labor, when it comes to the market, is a produced input. It's not something that's a externality, as economists would say, but that's something that needs to be problematized and thought about. And then, of course, that different fiscal, monetary, and trade policies can have very differential effects between various groups of men and women, depending on where they're situated in the economy and uh, the different sets of social relations that you know structure their society. And then finally, I think in terms of critical problem solving, 
what I've tried to do with my work with the United Nations and with the Canadian government is I've really tried to not just do a kind of state-of-the-art analysis of whatever research problematic is presented, but to see where might be some of the roots where you can push it a little further and actually start to push things in the direction of, of more structural changes, which are, of course, much more long-term. So it seems unusual in IP. Quite a lot of people don't want to do the um, policy work because they can mm. see it as somehow dirty or I, I think perhaps working for the other side if you like mm -hmm. and so, so you, you're working in that more direct policy arena is, is a somewhat unusual do you think that's a mistake for other, others in IP? Well I think that you know uh, as I said I was trained to be bilingual in, at the new school and I tell my students if I give advice to them to be uh, strategically bilingual, in other words, to actually work towards diversifying epistemologies and political alternatives, but at the same time to not disengage from the mainstream and not to disengage from policy. So I think that you can be strategic in terms of who you engage with and how you engage. Obviously, the, the, the end control is probably out of your hands, but uh, obviously, I think there's a difference if you're working at the World Bank or you're working at different parts of the UN, and there's different moments and ways in which you can engage and try and uh, create some change at the policy level. And have you been, um, have you found that a productive line of, of work? You've, you've been able to make progressive change, or have you sometimes found that? Uh, yeah, no, it's both. It's, you know, it's uh, one step forward, two steps back sometimes. But for example, in the Canadian context, since probably the 90s, I've been arguing and working with various levels of government to introduce uh, gender sensitive macroeconomics. And the tool for that has been gender sensitive or gender responsive budgeting. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, four years ago, all of a sudden, we now have a federal government that's committed to doing that. And just their last budget, I was really quite impressed with how far they've gone. And they've really made a commitment to assess all policy interventions from um, a gender sensitive perspective, but also to try and do a much more intersectional analysis as well. So, you know, I think that it's moments like that, that you do realize that you can make some progress. Is it going to be revolutionary? Probably not, but I think it can change the everyday conditions for a lot of people if that policy is done in good faith and applied well. Sure, sure, and, and affecting lots of people's lives is, <laughs> yeah. after all, pretty significant. Mm, yeah. Um, obviously, you know them for the work on social reproduction, mm -hmm. and you have a particular take on on social reproduction, so I, d I didn't know if you wanted to tell us more about the what the reasons why you've chosen. I mean, what your take is first of all, but the reasons mm -hmm. why you've you've chosen to frame social reproduction in the ways that you have. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I've already mentioned. I think it came out of two influences: one out of kind of Canadian political economy, and that the fact that you had a lot of people at an early stage writing about uh, the domestic question, the woman question. And uh, I think part of that was also 
me working in the student movement and seeing that there was not really a lot of interest in those kinds of questions. So trying to push that further. No, so I think I started off thinking about social reproduction in a fairly narrow, fairly Western sense. And uh, it was only when I started to work much more on questions of global restructuring. And I worked with research teams from the Global South and in India, for example, that I started to see social reproduction as something that went beyond the domestic labor debates, beyond housework, but that was a, a much more essential and broad question. And that it manifested itself in really different ways, in different societies and different contexts. So that's why um, we've now come up with this idea of variegated social reproduction, which will be coming out in this special issue of Capital and Class. Uh, this idea that builds a little bit on Brenner and Peck's work, but that the way in which neoliberalism is unfolding is, is variegated. It's more intense in some places, less intense so. And of course it interacts with the, with the cultural, the political, the historic dynamics of uh, different places and different spaces. Is there any, I mean, just informally, I mean, is, is there anything you want to say about the kind of, because obviously your take had that kind of cunt's critique of... Yes, I, well, I would, I think so, yes. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about it a long time, and I think that the critique of my concept of the reprivatization of social reproduction was was a fair one and was was important. It made me think more about the limitations of having that kind of framework because I was really operating from a Canadian or even a Western European context that had a certain post-war history of uh, both family wages as well as fairly strong state support for different components of social reproduction and was undergoing a rollback which uh, of course is the case in Canada as well as a lot of other countries. So with that rollback of subsidized social reproduction, if you like, what really was happening in Canada was that somehow it was disappearing back into where people thought it should naturally go. These were conservative politicians who were, um, who were unfolding the austerity policies, which was the home and women's labor. But at the same time, you had this tremendous pressure uh, for dual earner households and women going into the labor market. So for me, that's been an interesting development because it's shown increasingly the kind of um, tensions between different groups of women. So poor women uh, will be under pressure to uh, do that work of social reproduction beyond their jobs, whereas wealthier women, of course, can hire often migrant women to do that work of care and social reproduction, which then creates these quite strong differences and tensions amongst different groups of women. So I think that that is one of the reasons why I started thinking about uh, variegation, but also I think thinking about neoliberalism not just as this huge onslaught, which sometimes it feels like when, uh, when you're actually living through it, um, but seeing that there were openings, that there were resistances, that there were different responses and different capacities by both state and capital in various contexts 
I think it it needed that kind of rethinking. In that context, I'm often struck by, I think the the, the, the kind of broadly progressive or the left have a, a kind of pessimism about um they see neoliberalism as all conquering mm-hmm. and yet 25 30 years 40 years on institutions that have been under attack that whole time still remain at least in some form you mm-hmm. know the health services and you know the welfare state and so on yeah well i think that there's a there's an important political memory uh, amongst populations. I know in Canada, if you ask Canadians what makes you different from the United States, the first thing they'll say is, well, we have national health care. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is our form of, of identity. So I think that that is something that kind of lives in people and then it becomes very difficult. You can kind of chop away at the margins, but to sort of go right to the heart of those kinds of services that people require on a daily basis becomes quite difficult and there's a lot of resistance to that. Yeah, sure. Stuart, did you want to ask any more questions around the, the, the social... I mean, I've got one particular one, actually, about... Because you, you, you're kind of unusual in that um, kind of materialist, feminist line around social reproduction, in particularly drawing attention to Browdell and the kind mm-hmm. of historical remaking of processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to have, to me, to have a kind of a, both a time and a scale kind of element. It's the everyday constructing structures and structures yeah. shaping the everyday. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to say any more about that, because you are quite unusual in Yeah, actually, that's uh, in terms of the concept that uh, we've been developing, variegated social reproduction, we take in some of those ideas of Brodel, of the different forms of time, mm. the short, the conjunctural, and then the long durée. And I think you can very much think about social reproduction and the relations of social reproduction in those kinds of time frames. And then, of course, place and space is also incredibly important to that concept. So how uh, people live in different spaces and how those spaces are constructed through the relations of social reproduction. Because I think that really comes out in that it's the new political economy piece in two thousand and seven, yeah, yeah. and it really stands out amongst you know I think both kind of critical, know, kind of more Marxian end of things as well as the kind of yeah. feminist scholarship. I actually had a question, a kind of slightly tangential mm-hmm. question, obviously, about because um, you mentioned the Canadian yeah. um, uh, context for your work, and I wonder whether you kind of could just say a little bit about the network of scholars that you were involved with at that time mm-hmm. because I, you, from the outside I kind of think of people even like you, Janine Brody, etc mm-hmm. and it always looks very kind of interesting uh, very supportive kind of mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. and I wondered if that was actually the case um, yes <laughs> yeah. it was even better than you I, thought <laughs> I asked that in the completely wrong way no I think that you know I mean I, I'm there was a, a generation previous to, to mine that um, both you know struggled in the streets as well as built the theory and um, a lot of that previous generation was really um, animated by the national question either as the independence of Quebec or Uh, fighting American imperialism as it was put in those days and um, 
just getting back to the point about you know mixing politics, real politics, with your thinking, that there was a real commitment amongst that earlier generation, people like James Laxer, Mel Watkins, Daniel Drach, to um, try to form an alternative political party that came out of the early Social Democratic Party that was founded by Tommy Douglas, the CCF, and to build what they called a waffle movement, which was really a nationalist leftist party. And that very much informed their writing about Canada as a kind of branch plant economy and um, you know, influenced the way I thought about uh, the national question. But of course, what was absent from that was the, the feminist political economy. And uh, as I said, I think a lot of the early feminist political economists were really aligned with uh, labor, trade unions, the labor movement. And so for them, there was a question of how to build bridges of solidarity between those kinds of movements and the feminist movement. So it was very much work-oriented, worker-oriented, and trying to bring in the domestic question. Is there, a, is there a particular culture in Canada, do you think, of academic engagement with political struggle? Because certainly in the UK, I think that's become quite divided. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is a, a, a big tradition, yeah. Um, not just on the left, I think also on the right. Uh, they they uh, have engaged and they've shaped a lot of the, the policy platforms of some of the, um, the more right-leaning parties. So yeah, I think that there's a tradition, and uh, I mean, even for myself, I was a I was a campaign manager in my last year of undergraduate studies for a federal New Democratic Party candidate who happened to be my professor, but uh, she was running at the federal level. So I was kind of chucked in, if you like, to just get on with it and to do that kind of strategy. And I think that that was just, uh, you know, I think we all thought that that was important, that those voices would be heard, even if it was probably a lost cause seat, that you're raising the issues. And again, that's why I found uh, writings in IP to be really instructive, because I was trying to make sense of, of the world and uh, why we were engaging the way we were engaging. And I found that a lot of that literature helped me. Sorry, you want to, that's probably quite a kind of nice point to kind of ask a little bit more about IPE as a mm -hmm. you know, self-conscious mm -hmm. academic discipline. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, where, you know, do you think IPE is, as a discipline is in a kind of healthy position, uh, a healthy place at the moment? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess there's a couple of questions in there really. Is, you know, is IPE a discipline or a field of study? And... Um, Certainly, if you looked at the kind of two foundational figures for me, Susan Strange and Robert Cox, my ex-colleague, uh, Susan Strange said that IPE isn't really a field of study, and it should be like a wide open range, like the old Wild West, that's open to any literate person from all walks of life. And uh, Bob Cox thought that, you know, all we can really know is... Um, are, are, are the moral and political impulses for civil society that help us to form an ontology for understanding the challenges that face us, like biospheric collapse or extreme social polarization, 
exclusionary politics. Those would be just some of the questions. So I tend to be quite sympathetic to that approach. But then I look at my students and I see that, hold on, it's no longer an open range, you know, some four decades on. It's now uh, being policed, the boundaries are being policed, and there's debates about method, about subject, about theory, what Nancy Fraser calls boundary struggles that, you know, very much affect students. So I'm kind of of two minds when advising students because you know that they're operating in a competitive educational environment and they should have a discipline that they can hang their hat onto with a, a series of technical things that they've learned. So I guess I, I go back and forth in terms of how I think about it. And it's really how you operationalize it in the end. In the work Stuart and I did, we've, we've done some work around IP as a discipline mm -hmm. recently, and I, th I think we probably sit at slightly different ends of a spectrum. You, you probably prefer the kind of open-ended mm -hmm. uh, planes, mm -hmm. and, I, and I, I always come from this as looking at the institutions, yeah. and the psychologists get more resources because they're very good at organising as a discipline, yeah. and they... they form associations that say you can only have so many students and per member of staff and so on that that seems to me to be both inside the institution helpful but also in practical real world impact also helpful because those institutions help you um those kind of disciplinary institutions help mm -hmm. foster bridges to to real world impact and i sometimes think ip is missing a trick in, in yeah, well, I suppose the two people I referred to, Susan Strange and Bob Cox, they were kind of very highly individualistic and really didn't want to fit into anything. And they took that as their intellectual mission. So perhaps it's a bit grand to think that they should maybe define how uh, IP is thought about. But I agree with you. I think that in today's context, it's very important to have... Uh, a space for IPE as a strong set of ideas, as debates. But what I think is nice about IPE and and what welcomed me to IPEs is it's always expanding, both in terms of topics as well as the approaches to those topics. And I think that that's a very important quality to it. What do you see as being the key debates in IPE today? Well, as I said, I think that the, there's debates about methods and, of course, you know, there's the old positivism versus uh, more open-ended and qualitative approaches to doing your research. And, uh, you know, that depends largely on the audience that you're trying to speak to. I think that if we want to talk to a lot of American IPE specialists, they don't really want to talk to you unless you do some kind of positivist research. Um, and there's, yeah, I think there's a big debate about what should be included and what shouldn't be included and how should it be included. So, for example, a, a very standard topic like global finance. You know, feminist political economy has argued that we should be looking at that through a gendered lens, not just through a kind of general lens because it not only tells us who's making decisions and what kind of decisions they're making, but uh, it can also start to link the various levels uh, at which finance impacts on people. So everything from the household, questions of debt, questions of uh, mortgages, 
to uh, the highest levels of global finance and how decisions are made about interest rates, etc. Do you think the discipline's healthy now? Do you think it's making a contribution to those important areas of, uh, of policy and practice, but also mm-hmm. intellectual understanding of those areas? I think it's pretty healthy. It's growing. And uh, I certainly see huge interest in students to uh, engage with it. And I see it, I think, partly because it is so, it, it is so open and it hasn't been formed in a traditional disciplinary way that uh, it, it lends itself to much more creative fusion than some of the more established disciplines. And at the same time, it allows people to do, um, if they like, more uh, empirical, positivist type research, if that's what would be of interest. But as I said, I think it speaks to a very broad audience, and that's one of its strengths. Is, is there any particular reason why, because obviously Canada has stood out as a kind of a a pole in the, the kind of development of critical IP and, mm-hmm. and in, in the terms you mentioned before, more qualitative. Do you think there's any particular reason for that when you're so close to the <laughs> home of positivism and so on? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, I, I probably represent a particular viewpoint because I think if you went to some of the institutions across Canada, if, for example, uh, you wanted to study economics, it w- you would be hard-pressed to study the kind of economics that we read and write about, really. It has become very uh, monetarist, positivist, mathematized. So I think that, that that space is shrinking. But I think whilst that is shrinking, if people are interested in economics, they tend to come much more into IPE because they realize that it can't be analyzed in an isolated way. I think in terms of Canada, it's just precisely because we we live next to this dominant power, the hegemon, that um, people were very explicit in trying to define both their thinking as well as their political activities in reference to that and almost using it like, you know, that's what we shouldn't do. We should be different. And so despite the fact that we were a much smaller country population-wise, um, I think that that helped to shape that that critical thinking that we weren't along the same development path, if you like, as as the United States. You've obviously um, supported the development of quite a few PhD students, and some of whom are friends of ours, and um, uh, having an impact in the, in their own right. I, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about about any of you know that kind of. Uh, not legacy, but that kind of developmental path. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, for me, it's really exciting and really rewarding to have had some absolutely amazing students, some here in the UK, like Adrian Roberts, Genevieve Le Baron. Uh, we have Sebastian Rue in Montreal. A, a lot of them have gotten really good positions, and they're taking their ideas forward in a really original way, and that's what's exciting. So they're not people who slavishly trained and then are reproducing a certain set of concepts and ideas. They're really taking things uh, into their own uh, venues and their own interests, and that's, that's really, really rewarding. 
So obviously you're excited about reading the work of, of, of those people you just mentioned. Yeah. But is there anybody else that you're reading at the moment that you, you think students of IPE should should pay attention mm. to? Well, one of the... I, I just finished reading a short little book by um, a scholar named Craig Fortier. He's Canadian. And the book is called Unsettling the Commons. And one of the things that I've become really interested in, and this will be one of my future projects, is to look at the whole question of the commons as a radical concept of politics. Because one of the things he asks in that book is, can we really have a radical politics of the commons when you're living in a settler colonial society that relies on stolen lands? So I think that this conception, the, the kind of Western European conception of the commons based on uh, some of the work of Peter Leimbaugh and others, where it was a lost commons to this uh, other notion of the indigenous peoples of Canada and elsewhere is something that I'd like to explore. So that was a very interesting book. I'm also really interested in reading more about epistemologies of the South, in particular, how do we valorize and uh, kind of rethink uh, epistemology from a more global perspective so those would be some some of the items that are on my reading okay right so and you, you say the next project is the a kind of commons enclosure kind of project that's one of them it? yeah uh that would be that i'm we're i'm also working with stephen gill on um future scenarios of power production and social reproduction so really trying to think about if we have a kind of incremental uh liberal internationalist uh, approach. What does the future look like, especially in terms of the challenges to do with the, the biosphere, climate change? Or what are some of the radical alternatives like degrowth and really interrogating those in terms of at least the validity of degrowth in the global north? I would not necessarily say that that's something that should be a global uh, approach, but that, that would be another project. And then a final project is a book with uh, a medical doctor, an ethicist from South Africa, Solly Benatar, on global planetary health. So we're really interested in advancing this concept of global planetary health. Great. Um, do you want to go to the last one or do you want to? No, I think we yeah. yeah, okay. So if you were giving advice to uh, somebody perhaps do starting out on their PhD mm. in IP, I'm sure you do give this advice. I mean, what would you advise them to focus on mm -hmm. and, and why? Yeah, well, I think I touched on this before that, uh, as I said, I would advise them to try to be strategically bilingual and to really focus on uh, not just one epistemology, not just one approach, but to look for, for diversity and to contribute to, to that diversity of epistemological thinking and to start really seriously thinking about alternatives because I think that uh, that's one area where we're still struggling. Even in IPE, it's probably easier to come up with very concrete policy suggestions, but it's, it's much more difficult to come up with visioning, concrete visioning that... Uh, that might suggest alternative futures. It always seems a weakness on the again. Yeah, it's usually the, the last left. paragraph. Yeah, yeah, and the <laughs> right. article. <laughs> of course, yeah, and the right's very very willing to 
provide a vision of what the future might look mm -hmm. like. But the left mm -hmm. perhaps sometimes mm -hmm. sticks to critique as opposed to constructing another yeah. possible reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you've got Do you a... want to... No, oh, no. Okay. okay. Oh, that was just a little note. So... Do you want to ask your question? Your, or was your last question? Oh, my... Oh, what should we have asked? <laughs> <laughs> That is always my last question. Every interview I do about everything, yeah. from <laughs> you know some local policy to yeah. to anything, is yeah. you know, was there anything you thought we would ask about or that we should have asked about that we haven't? Um, maybe just you know, how did I end up being in university? Yeah, okay. Because uh, you know, I, I'm sure everyone has different backgrounds and. Uh, for me, the, it was the last thing that I ever imagined for myself, that I would be uh, a teacher in a university and that people might actually read what I'm writing. Because I came to Canada when I was 10 years old as an immigrant uh, from a working class family. And I was the first of any of the family that actually went to university and thought certainly that after my undergraduate years, I must get a job immediately. And had actually signed up for one, and then so was what very was the much. Job? Oh, it was it was actually a policy job, so it would have been you know doing some of the number crunching, but um, I, I was encouraged to go to go on and encouraged to go to the new school, which really did, did change you know my idea, and it's this idea of visioning. So this is again something that I encourage students when I see them in their undergraduate years, I encourage them to, to go on to graduate school when I see the potential so that they may not even have that vision, but if you sometimes help them see that vision, it moves uh, them. And who, who was it encouraged you? It was actually a very close uh, family that I got to know as an undergraduate and they were from an intellectual background and they saw the potential and they said you should go on. Okay. Yeah. And what might the alternative Isabella Vaca look like? <laughs> I wanted to be an ambulance man. Oh, very good. <laughs> Paramedic, that's what yeah. I wanted to be. Oh, I think I would have, because um, I'd already had a lot of experience working on royal commissions and working for different government agencies. I probably would have, you know, moved up the ladder probably in, in government and uh, tried to affect change that way. Do you have much? I know, I know you said about or the, or run for prime minister. <laughs> good, good. Um, I, know, I know you said about the you, you've worked at various times with the Canadian government or in, you know encouraging mm. them in, in in terms of gender budgets and so on. Do you, do you have much engagement with the Trudeau government now? I do off and on, yeah, more as a kind of touchstone to see, you know, how are we doing? Are we doing the right things? So uh, I, I work more in an advisory capacity now. Thanks for listening to Foundations in International Political Economy. We hope you'll check in with us again soon. You can subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Or just go to the website www.ipefoundations.org.uk to find out more.